Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, and I'm the president of Freedom Road, a consulting group that's dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. So we want to welcome you to Freedom Road Podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations that we normally have on the front lines of the work. And it's just that this time, there are microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And so this month, we are so excited. We have four guests all in studio. Oh my gosh, I feel like literally we should just throw a party just for that. Yes. Because for the last <laughs> last several months, we've been chasing people around the universe. Like, you know, literally one, one of them, we actually chased somebody through the airport as they were on the phone. They were literally walking onto their plane as they were on the phone with us. But I'm so thankful that you guys all came in. Um, we are going to be talking Ruby Woo pilgrimage, y'all. Ruby Woo pilgrimage. I'll explain that in a little bit. But these are all women who took that pilgrimage. And so the the first person I want to introduce is Megan Stone. Megan Stone is the senior fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations, and she previously served as the president of Nobel Peace Prize winner Malala Yousaf- Yousafzai. 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 Yes. So forgive me. Forgive me, Malala. I want to meet you one day. You're my Shiro. But so she served as the president of Malala's Malala Fund, um, which was working to empower girls globally. So thank you so much for coming in, Megan. I'm so grateful to be here. And we also have Barbara Noe Kennedy. She left her job of 23 years in 2015 at National Geographic Travel Publishing to fly solo as a freelance travel writer. So, Barbara, thank you so much for coming. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And how awesome that you got to do our pilgrimage. Talk about travel, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> well, I can't wait to well, hear your yeah. thoughts. And I want to be doing things that, you know, are significant and mean something. So this is... Oh, that's awesome. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. And so, Melissa O'Keefe. Melissa O'Keefe is currently serves as outreach leader at Christ City Church in D.C., as well as working as an assistant to a Christian speaker and author who many of you might know, Mark Charles. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. And, and then the last but not least is Andrea Ackerman. Um, Andrea serves as the pastoral associate at Christ City Church in Washington, D.C. So thank you for coming, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you all. The thing these women have in common, as I said earlier, is that they all participated in the Ruby Woo pilgrimage, which is basically a pilgrimage through the intersectional story of women's struggle for empowerment in the United States. When Megan went on the pilgrimage, it was in its very first year. She was literally one of the guinea pigs <laughs> who, who we tested out this whole thing on. And it ended up being an incredible experience. Nothing, yes. If nothing else, there was deep bonds that happened mm. between the women that still exist today. Yes. I mean, we are sisters, right? Like, because we went on this thing together. We had this common experience. And last year, Barbara and Melissa and Andrea went on a pilgrimage that was all about um, women's struggle for the vote, to attain the vote. We really um, made the story more specific. And it ended up being just an incredibly powerful time. So we want to open up this experience basically to everybody else who wasn't able to get on the bus and kind of let you in since this is Women's History Month. Woo-hoo! Okay. <laughs> really, on, we're ladies. supposed to be celebrating women. And so I thought, well, what better way than for us to celebrate the experience we had together as women and to share with everybody what we learned, right, on the journey. So we would love to hear your thoughts as well. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We love the back and forth and we really do love to get into conversation online. So let's let's do that. So back in the 1970s, I will never forget being in the car with my mom when we were driving down the highway. Well, I don't even know if it was the highway, just a big road because I was really small. So all the roads were really big in Philadelphia. And my mom, all of a sudden on the radio, this song came on and it was 
I am woman, hear me roar. Mm. Do you remember that? Come like, come on, like come we're on. in the 70s. Like, the, I mean, look, I'm totally dating myself, but whatever. <laughs> Say I'm, that, Lisa Shane. I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. I can't, I can't, like, you know, not date myself anymore given all my references. So it's like, whatever, the jig is up. <laughs> so, but I remember how empowered it felt to sing that song with my mom, mm. right? As a, as, a, as a little girl, right? And so, and the ERA was actually, I think it was actually the ERA was was coming up around that time in 1980, I believe. And I remember when the ERA fa- failed. I think I was 11 years old. Yes, I have just really dated myself. <laughs> but that's okay because I am woman, hear me roar, right? So, but, but the ERA failed. And I remember asking my mom, how? How could a piece of legislation that is actually about the equality of women to men, how could that not pass? And, you know, it was actually, I don't, I don't remember what my mom said, and I'm not really sure she knew how to answer that because it is kind of ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then I got involved in the evangelical church, which actually was the reason why it didn't pass, mm-hmm. which is funny because I never really made those connections until later in life. And when I became that an evangelical Christian, when I went into the church, I was basically taught that you can't be a woman and be a leader, right? So it took a while for that to be taught. It was actually what it took till I was in college for someone to actually pull me aside and tell me as a woman, you have to learn to follow. Mm-hmm. But I actually did have that moment. I wonder how many of you also had that moment. And So it was so amazing the moment when in, I think it was April 5th, 2017, when we were online, everybody was on Twitter and all of a sudden I got roped into a Twitter storm, you know, and it was already a previous conversation that was going on. I don't even know what it was about, but I know that I got looped into one question that someone asked. And it was a really provocative question. It was, what women do you do you not like? Do, are you not for? And the, I'm trying to remember, Deidre Riggs. Mm. It, Deidre Riggs was the person who asked that question. And, and she said, nobody. Like she basically said, I'm not, I am not, I am for everyone. And then she said, basically, here are the people I'm for. And she started to list them. And next thing you know, everybody's starting to list who they're for. And that's how I kind of got looped in. And Megan got looped in eventually. And everybody, basically, by the time we finished the day, we had, I think, 36 women who were looped into this cloud. And the thing about Twitter is once you're looped in, you can't get out. So it is. It's kind of like, it's almost like a little cult, right? So towards the end of the day, Kathy Kong asked the question, has anybody ever heard of Ruby Woo? And it was then that people began to um, say, yes, I love Ruby Woo. Ruby Woo was amazing. And it was took basically about a week. But the idea for the pilgrimage, the Ruby Woo pilgrimage came from that. And you might know the magic of Ruby Woo lipstick is that it looks good on any skin shade. And also it's super bright red. So it's kind of the symbol of power. So, all right. With that, I want to ask everyone here. What drew you to get on board the bus? What made you want to get on board the bus? Well, I can speak to the first year because mm-hmm. none yeah. of us really knew what was awaiting us on that the magic bus. Yeah. But, you know, I know for me, I was really longing and looking for renewed community in such a time as this. So I think... Like a lot of the women I found on the trip, you know, really committed to my faith, really coming from what, what most people describe as an evangelical tradition uh, and, and to this day unapologetic and proud of my faith and fully committed mm. and so grateful to God, but could not find my people all of a sudden, you know, really finding that what was happening in the country was starting to expose some deep divisions in the church that I didn't realize uh, were as, as deeply held in people that I was worshiping and spending time with. And and these are people that I loved and people that I still do love and people I was grateful for and people I'm still yeah. grateful for. But, you know, I think we have different seasons in our work and in our faith lives. And I just had felt this stirring for a while. I really mm-hmm. needed to find other women specifically because there's something really powerful about being in community with other women. And, and finding a way to kind of seek God together in this time, in this country, at this moment. And what did that look and feel like? And it was something that I just wasn't finding 
in my church community at the time. And the more that these issues were coming up, the more I was getting those messages back about if you think and feel this way and uh, you say it even as uh, politely, respectfully, deferentially, kindly as you can, uh, you, you may not belong here. <laughs> and really? yeah, you know, and it's wait, just, wait, wait. Yeah. So if you think and feel what way? Because you're you're traveling all over the world with Malala. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're, you're literally engaging in actual justice, not only not only for women and girls, but also global justice, like between nations in some ways. Mm-hmm. So what was it that they were not down for that? Well, what and I, I say that kind of knowing the answer, but keep going. <laughs> well, I see the, the work that I do, you're constantly living in, I call it a creative tension because I want to reframe it as a positive of uh, really different ways of seeing the world, you know, mm. and for me working in the communities that I've worked in, when I worked for Malala, previously now at the Council on Foreign Relations right. on girls and women's focused foreign policy and human rights, essentially, mm. you're, you're constantly going to be sitting down with other people with very different views. And I actually really treasure that time, that that space and kind of sitting together in, in that space that develops views respectfully and listening to people and figuring out how are we going to work together and, and move forward. And so even to this day in a very polarized town, as we sit in Washington, D.C., mm. I'm so grateful for my bi- bipartisan friendships and relationships and with people that may look at the world very differently from me. So I really treasure that. But what I was starting to hear more and more of was, you know, if you are for the rights of all people, if you want to talk about issues of race and, and true equity and justice, uh, that really going to have to take on centering of the white experience in the church. You know, for me, I believe God loves all people equally. I am for the human rights and integrity and equality of all people, including our LGBT sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, those positions, which I share and just reflect my own my own spiritual convictions and beliefs uh, as a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, were not were not at home in the communities where I had found myself. And I, I found myself struggling with this question of, am I called by God to stay in a community and, and sit in that tension? That's part of my calling is to continue to be that person, that community that brings us up respectfully in love. Or is it time to, in love, thank and honor uh, this community and uh, believe that God may have a different place for me to worship and to um, love God and, and love and serve people. And mm-hmm. um, that was the question that was really in my heart when I got on that bus. So there were a lot of uh, long drives on that bus where I was sitting in the back with, with other women on the trip talking about how we were all having very similar questions about wow. loving God, uh, being fully committed to our faith as Christian women uh, and not having a home anymore. Um, and asking this question, am I called to stay in this tension here with the hope of changing hearts and minds and love? Or am I called to go and, and get nourished in community with a like-minded community and saying you can love God and believe these things? Mm. And it was a gift to be in community with those women over those days and and leave knowing, yes, yes, I can. And yes, yeah. this community is here. And I think that's why we're all still in contact to this day. We Actually, all are like on group texts constantly. <laughs> You know, uh, affirming each other, asking for prayer, I'm encouraging each other. So it was, it was a powerful gift of community. Wow. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's great. I see a lot of people nodding. <laughs> well, I guess mine is a little opposite in mm. that I am not evangelical. And mm-hmm. in some ways, when I saw that that was sort of, you know, the overarching, I was like, what the heck did I just get into? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. But I tell you, I went to the Women's March, you know, after that 2016 election and just felt the empowerment and the energy and just, you know, now is the time to do something. And then after it all just sort of fizzled and meantime, crazy things are going on in the world. And it's like, what do we do? And so I actually saw Katie Zimmerman's post on Facebook announcing um, this Ruby Woo pilgrimage. Yeah. And it you know, without doing much research, without knowing really anybody other than Katie. Which is probably a good thing. (laughs) The evangelical thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I just had this gut feeling that I need to do this. Wow. And even I think I did it without even like, well, I might have mentioned it to my husband, but (laughs) (laughs) but I was pretty quick to get on the bus. So Mm -hmm. and for me, I mean, it was also being with a lot of evangelical women and learning that you may think one way of somebody, but that's absolutely not the case because everybody was just so open-minded. And I mean, we're all in it together, really. Mm -hmm. And we all want the same things. And 
for me, it was such a powerful experience for that reason. Awesome. Awesome. Anybody else want to jump in? Well, so I come from a similar background. A couple of you have mentioned of the conservative evangelical background. And so I don't have a history of hearing women's stories too often or hearing about women leaders mm-hmm. because that isn't something that would necessarily be encouraged. I don't know that that's intentional, but that was my experience of, of not hearing them. So when I heard about the Ruby Woo pilgrimage and, and realized that it would be an a, opportunity for me to learn about stories of women um, and women's history, which I wasn't familiar with, mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. But I had some hesitancies of being sure, was it okay to take time on something like that? Was it okay to spend money on something like that? That's just, I was considering it in quotes for fun and on myself. Um, And those were things that are hard because I'm newer in the practice of doing things for myself and investing in my growth and things like that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I still fight with those feelings of guilt of like, oh, I I shouldn't devote my family's money to this or time or it's going to put pressure on my kids or things like that. So I I was working through it um, with friends and Andrea, my friend is here, um, encouraged me very strongly to go to. The the final thing that really helped me commit to coming was I was talking to one of the elders at my church who is a woman and, and she was telling me that she felt like it was a valuable investment in myself. And she also reminded me that I'm raising two daughters. And she said, it's important for your daughters to see you investing in yourself and to see you investing in learning about women and learning women's stories. And this is for them also. Go and so that was that, that was the final thing for me after I wiped away all my tears from hearing her say that, because I just realized that was true. And, and it wasn't a way that I'm used to thinking. So I committed to coming on the trip and it was it was worth it. And, and I haven't regretted that investment in myself at all. And it has been something I've been able to bring back to my friends, bring back stories to my daughters. And it's all still sinking in. It's still manifesting, coming out in different ways. But it was a good investment. And I'm glad that people in my life pushed me to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, I mean, for you, Andrea, and also for Barbara, there was, you've really only had about two months to process Mm -hmm. our experience, maybe three. But I mean, like we said at the beginning of the pilgrimage la- this last year, you will be processing this for the next mm-hmm. 10 years. <laughs> it's like this is not something that just goes away. I think all of us kind of are. How about you, Andrea? I grew up in a similar a similar context, evangelical, and I was a – so I'm a Korean-American adoptee, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a white pastor's family in a mostly black community – So, you know, lots to unpack there. Um, But it's interesting because in the past few years, the big thing that I feel like I've had to wrestle with hasn't really been around um, my ethnicity. It's been more around being a woman. And I think not just discerning, but accepting a call to pastoral ministry has been so difficult for me. I, I once I kind of got over that hump. I became this, like, I will champion women forever, especially women in the church and in the evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's been like a given for me. I feel like I'm, I've arrived somewhere there. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's only been a bit more recently that I have started to think about the implications of being a Korean-American, which is a whole other box. And then you add adoptee to that, and that gets even more confusing. Yeah. But my daughters, too, have played a huge role in that for me and processing that for myself, mm. having two little Korean American daughters run around and navigate the world as Asian Americans is very compelling for me to figure out what my place is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I was so drawn to the intersectional piece of Ruby Woo. Yeah. Um, I heard about it at the Voices Conference last year. Yeah, that's right. Yes. And I had such a powerful experience there of of hearing solely from from leaders of color, including women of color. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, I've been on this intersectional journey of not only am I a woman, I'm a woman of color, and I feel the responsibility to to steward my own life experience, not just for me and not just for my daughters, but for women in, in general. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus, 40 women, three days, multiple encounters 
with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C. And then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Woo Pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us. Ruby Roo began back in, two, in, in November 2017, right around the time when Me Too began. And it was becoming this national phenomenon. And in, in the years plus since then, or the year plus since, um, our nation has experienced a bunch of stuff. We've experienced Bill Cosby going to jail. We have experienced multiple media moguls getting fired because of their subjugation of women and their normal practices in life. We experienced the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which were incredibly triggering for people, for women all over the country and really anyone who's who's experienced gender-based violence. And we've also experienced several church scandals where pastors who were really revered had to step down from their in their posts because it was revealed that they also were perpetrators of abuse against women or violence against women. And then it's funny because now it's like it's there's kind of a flip happening in this in this season we're in right now. Nancy Pelosi is our speaker of the house. Hello somebody. <laughs> right? We have several women who are running for president and they are all amazing. I mean, truly, they're all incredibly strong for various reasons. So I want to ask you, as you think about the time since you went on the pilgrimage, whether it's three months or a year and four months or five months, how do you think your experience has impacted the way that you're processing all of this, the way that you've processed and, you know, I'm sure you're still processing the Me Too movement, right? So even though it's, it's it was like a year old when we went on the pilgrimage for three of us here, since you came back, I'm sure you're processing maybe a little bit differently. So how what's, what's the difference that it's making for you? Is there a before and after experience, in other words, of how you're processing? So I would say it impacted me both personally and professionally. So, you know, personally, I think the conversations we had on the trip influenced me in two ways that were really meaningful for me personally. It was one, starting to come to terms with the fact that I had been sexually assaulted uh, mm -hmm. myself, really starting to own that part of my story mm -hmm. and being able to talk about it in an atmosphere of faith with other women of faith, women of faith from different communities was really meaningful. And I, you know, I'll say it transparently in case this is meaningful for even one person listening. After I finished the trip, I actually went to counseling to process it. Mm -hmm. um, I had not done all the work around what that meant to me as a woman. And, you know, that was a really healing thing that I think God had for me on that trip. And I actually watched the Kavanaugh hearings later. I was at the New York Times, had a women's leadership summit that they invited me to come and participate in. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be scheduled well in advance. And it was the day that the Kavanaugh hearings hearings started. And so there was this really uh, poignant moment where all the, all these incredibly high level women from every possible wow. sphere, including women who were the founders of Time's Up wow. and the two reporters at the New York Times uh, who broke the story, you know, originally that kicked a lot of the coverage off um, in terms of Harvey Weinstein. We were all in the hallway watching the hearings and every woman was crying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was women that you only see in public composed, powerful, and they are those things. They are composed and powerful. But it was a very human moment of sisterhood. And I actually went down to the Supreme Court. Uh, during the, wow. the process when there was a demonstration because I wanted to show up for me. I wanted to show up to the for the girl who was raped, for the girl who was mistreated. And I wanted to show up as a Christian woman in that um, environment and say, you know, all I'm asking for is a is a proper investigation of credible claims. I'm not uh, saying who's guilty or innocent. I'm just asking for a real investigation of these claims, which is something that I also heard women again and again asking yeah. in terms of some of these church cases of high level pastors um, and churches failing to actually have 
credible investigations of credible claims. And so that was the personal. On the professional, my life at the Council on Foreign Relations is working on girls and women's uh, human rights. And we've been looking at the Me Too movement globally. And everything that got kicked off the United States has actually been now seen globally all over the world in countries like India and Pakistan, Brazil, Mm -hmm. China. Mm. Women in over 100 countries have been using and continue to use the Me Too hashtag Mm. all Mm. over the world. Even in China, um, women use emoji to get around censors because the Chinese government pulls down these posts within hours. Um, You know, women in Brazil like Marielle Franco is an Afro-Brazilian woman who was assassinated for running for office. But someone described her assassination as um, they thought they would silence us. And instead, they stepped on an anthill, meaning that all these women are now running, you know, for office. Um, You know, and I went to Pakistan myself a couple months ago to meet with women activists there. And I really carried all the women from the trip, from the Ruby Wolf pilgrimage in my heart. And it was just so powerful to me how we were really knit together. You know, both the history of all the women that we learned about on the trip in a really in-depth way and all of our sisters who are doing this work in in our respective communities globally Mm -hmm. and of every background, race, ethnicity and experience. And there's a real power to that. And so that was a real gift of the pilgrimage as well, was seeing those really meaningful connections that I think we need as people that work in advocacy, policy, activism in our church communities to keep us going because this is hard work. Mm -hmm. It costs a lot. And so I feel like there is a great cloud of witnesses, a great sisterhood of witnesses now that I am really drawing upon um, in tough, tough times when I feel stretched in my work, when you're really facing these demands. And so I'm grateful for that. Amen. It's a sisterhood of the traveling lipstick. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. How about how about you, Andrea? I think that one of the I think I said this on the trip. I noted this idea of the great cloud of witnesses and my idea of that on the trip just expanded. It was completely different. And I think that especially, you know, around all the things that are happening in the country, I think that. One thing that has just shifted for me has been the the power of individual story, Um, because I think that as women, especially as women, we have this inner voice that's like, who do you think you are? Your story is not that significant. It doesn't actually really matter. And even with something like the Me Too movement, for me to say, I'm going to, you know, concede my time to a person who's had a much more traumatic experience, that can be appropriate. I also think that that can be a cop out to say my voice is not important. And I think that the the power we've seen with Me Too has been it's the collective of individual voices that makes it so powerful. Yes. And so I think even with Ruby Woo and with everything that's been happening um, with Me Too and even just around the Brett Kavanaugh trial and things like that, I noticed something I think um, I'm, I feel lucky to be around people who who ask and do want to listen to my story, even though there's not this I don't have um, I have not experienced the same kind of trauma that so many women have. But I think it was just so significant to be asked even by my husband or the men that I work with to say, like, what is it like for you to be a woman today? And for me to say, oh, yeah, like it's teaching my children that when they turn 14 or 15, that you're going to get catcalled when you walk down the street. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a reality that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And for even to see the men in my life be like, oh my gosh, that is a reality that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I think that I recognize the power of the normativity of the dominant narrative, which has been male most of the time, and mm-hmm. how powerful mm-hmm. an individual story, my story even, and my experiences, how they resist that and how they come against that and how important that is. Yeah, you know, that reminds me actually on the pilgrimage. And I think this was specifically for this year's pilgrimage. I don't think we did this on the first year. But this year we were very, very intentional about the spiritual formation at the beginning of each day. And so we did the divine hours each each morning and um, reading the text and kind of going back and forth. You know, this side of the bus read these, this piece and that part, side of the bus read that piece. And several times we actually began to insert the word she wherever we saw the word he. Mm. And that itself pushed against the normativity of maleness. It was really, I mean, it feels weird. And, you know, in my evangelical self, it almost feels heretical. Mm -hmm. But then when you really think about it, think about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we actually really believe that God is a he? Does God, really God has genitalia? (laughs) <laughs> no, on, like, yeah, I mean, come I on, we're it. for real here. This is for <laughs> real. real. Questions. Yes, come on, <laughs> say that. 
God does not have genitalia. <laughs> so it is as heretical to say he as it is she. So let's uh, will, just. Will there be a shareable Twitter graphic from that quote? <laughs> Now there will have to be. There will have to be. That was, that was, that's a note. Forward. That's a note. So, um, but yeah. So, so now, but how about you guys? How has that? I'm looking at Barbara and Melissa. How have? How has this experience changed the way you process what's happening in our world? I think for me, just realizing, like I shared before, and not really knowing a lot of of feminist history and how women got the right to vote and things like that. When I heard those stories and heard the arguments that were used against them, used the things that people said about them. And then when I come into today and I see the things that people are saying about women who are leading today and how they're demeaning them and how they're putting them down and, you know, how the way that women's stories are dismissed and men's actions are excused and all of those things, I just realized this isn't new and it's a system that's been going on for a long time. And again, whether people are aware of how they're participating in it or not, I just have been really struck by this, just an underlying system that we have, my experience of 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 women, although there's a lot of different groups of people, whether you're marginalized because of skin color or because of a disability or because of your gender or whatever, but just how our society is so divided up into people whose voices are listened to Mm -hmm. and other people's voices are discounted. And that just become really a lot more apparent to me after going on the pilgrimage and learning the past and realizing that there's not a things have changed for the better, for sure. But there's some underlying things that still go on today that and we still have work to do. Yeah, absolutely. And they changed because of people's blood and sweat, yeah. you know, and and lives, actually. Mm. Yeah. How about for you, Barbara? Let's see if I can put this into words. Okay. I'm still processing. Okay. But we went to the um, the Lower Tenement Museum yeah. and visited some very small rooms where immigrants came yeah. at the end of the 1800s, beginning 1900s. Mm-hmm. And... To me, it's like I saw my story there as a white American who, yeah, I'm not exactly sure how to state that, but it's almost like I was forgetting my story. No, that's real. And I think, yeah, I think, and that's what was so important on this pilgrimage. It's kind of the specificity of your story. Well, exactly. part of a larger whole. Exactly. Yeah. I know um, when we met with Ruby Sales, you know, she's was just talking about how the whiteness, how we come here, people with the white skin, and just become white. And we lose our heritage, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm German-American, and I, I mean, I don't like German food. And, I, mean, I, have like no, <laughs> I mean, I feel no connection to my past mm-hmm. other than, I guess, you know, being white. Mm-hmm. And so that was something for me just to mull over and think about you know, in the broader context of what's going on in the world. And I wanted to add one more thing, yeah. too, about I mentioned Ruby Sales and just, you know, with the craziness that's going on in the world and how it can be overwhelming and what the heck do we do? We had dinner with her and and she kept on saying small victories. That's good. She's, she was saying how, you know, we want a revolution. We want it all to change overnight, you yeah. know, and yeah. That's not the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think the last um, midterm election showed small victories, you know, the number of women and yeah. people of color who got into Congress. I mean, those are small victories. Each one. Each a one. small victory. Yeah. That together, collectively, exactly. is like, what, a blue wave. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or I shouldn't actually say a blue wave because it's not about blue no. or, no. or red. It was really a pink wave. Well, yeah, it's just it's being compassionate <laughs> and doing the right thing and, mm. you know, caring about the people of this world. Mm. I, you know, I, I do want to say it actually was a blue wave just because when they I saw a photo, you know, afterwards of who got elected. And mm. I think there was one woman who was Republican in their photo in the photo of all the folks from that party. And the Democrat, there were a lot of women. And to mm. me, that speaks to. Uh, the work this community, the church community, evangelical community needs to take up, which is, uh, wow. you know, I I love working with my colleagues across the aisle, even though I myself politically am progressive, uh, you know, but I also have some views that don't fit within that rubric. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. like a lot of people of faith may have very different views about different things that don't always fit in a, in a neat, tied up bow and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of wonder where's my home or where, where maybe I muster with these people on this issue and these other folks I agree on this issue. 
But I think that's the work, you know, visually it was just very striking, the lack of diversity in every way, you mm. know. And so that's the only reason I say, like, yeah, there are some, there, there are ways to observe measurable things uh, without making it accusatory or uh, saying that we're condemning it. But it's saying this needs to change. You know, it's a, the difference between conviction and condemnation, right? So, like, there should mm. be a conviction there, but not a condemnation. Uh, we shouldn't condemn people that, you know, fail to come to that realization and commitment to those values, but there should be a conviction or this needs to change, you know, and I think yeah. that's the work that the church hasn't taken up and that that community still needs to, mm-hmm. to really own. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it's funny because I, I catch myself now. I mean, I said, oh, not a blue wave. It actually, it was a blue wave. I was, you know, trying to be nice. <laughs> As a woman, I'm trying to be nice, right? But I mean, we're just as an evangelical trying to be nice or whatever. But no, it really was. And this actually is interesting because I think in a lot of ways, the reason it was a blue wave of women Mm -hmm. is because of the intersectionality of the current Democratic Party. The reason why women have been able to flourish there is because there's a way that women have not had to divorce themselves of their ethnicity in order to promote themselves as women. But they have not, they haven't had to divide themselves. So I'm able to be, um, and this was my very first book, so I'm not outing myself at all, but I am a Democrat. And the reason for that is because in that worldview or the way that the Democrats currently are approaching the question of how the polis lives together, mm-hmm. it is considering the equality of myself, my body, as both an, a person of African descent and as a woman. And so I'm able to bring my whole self there, right? And so the whole self flourishes. But that is just not the permission to flourish is just not present right now yeah. on the other side of the aisle. I don't think that's that's really debatable. <laughs> yeah, I think this is why it's so important for people of faith, and you can only speak to my tradition, faith tradition as a Christian and from what, again, most people describe as an evangelical tradition is it's really important for us to be in these conversations. You know, the funny thing for me as a Christian woman is I'm on the board of Indivisible. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people in church communities that (laughs) are horrified (laughs) that I serve in that role. And um, there are probably people in the progressive community that don't uh, don't guess, uh, you know, that I you know, I'm an evangelical Christian either, you know, so I find myself with one foot in both worlds um, with some, you know, questions and maybe even suspicion from both communities. And mm-hmm. I think it's so important. That's why we have to authentically show up and be in community. You know, I want people that are like, hey, I think all Christians believe this to ask me questions and to have me respond calmly and love and get asked tough things and give me the opportunity to say, actually, you know, I've read the book. I'm not sure if everyone's reading the same book as me, but when I read the Bible, (laughs) I feel like Christ is really clear about some things. I'm looking at those red letter words and and this is what they seem to mean to me. Personally, this is my personal conviction as a person of faith, you know, and I and I welcome even uncomfortable conversations in my faith community uh, about what I what I believe and what I do out in the world. But I think we have to just throw off and reject this whole constraining construct that if you are a believer, um, if you are a follower of Christ, that you cannot be out loving and serving people in this way. Of course you can. And I think that was something that the pilgrimage really highlighted was that if you are against injustice, which a lot of churches talk about, that requires looking at the the systems that Mm -hmm. have created that injustice and will have to change. And the way those systems are going to change is not only one-on-one, which is how we look at a lot of church Mm -hmm. engagement, you know, sponsor a child or take a trip or fund one Christian organization, it's going to require being engaged politically. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need 
to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. pilgrimage. We walk through the struggles of women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Harriet Tubman, Margareta um, and Sarah Fortin, Dolores Huerta, Mabel Lee, the Irish women immigrants down in the tenements um, in Lower East Side, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, Ida B. Wells, Frances Harper, Fannie Lou Hamer. Well, these are the women whose lives we really asked, you know, God, show us their struggle, show us how they won their empowerment. Oh, and the women on the first pilgrimage, the women who are heading up the sanctuary movement in New York City, right? So we asked that deep question. Oh, and for Ruby Sales, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I think I just want to ask you, do any of them continue to inspire you? Well, I came back um, from Ruby with a large list of books that I wanted to read um, and women's names that I wanted to learn more about. And one of the people that were mentioned I, so, sort of briefly on the trip, but um, were sisters named Sarah and Angelina Grimke yes. um, from South Carolina. And that stood out to me because I'm from South Carolina. So they were on the top of my list to come home, find books about them, read more about them. And I've just finished their book this last week. And they're very inspiring. And living before the Civil War, coming from a slaveholding family in the South, and just that they were able to, on their own, have their eyes opened to the problems in their society and in their culture, that they were brave enough to stand up against it. Um, it cost them a lot to leave, kind of cost them their family, being able to live in the South, but they just continued to follow what they believed was right mm -hmm. um, and ended up being, which probably a lot of people know, I hadn't heard of them, but leaders in the abolitionist movement. And then their work crossed over into women's suffrage as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I believe they're kind of known for kind of being some of the first thinkers in both of those ways and establishing a lot of the theory of how the abolitionist movement and the women's movement went after that. Mm -hmm. One of the sisters, Sarah, was uh, wrote a lot about being really doubtful of herself. And she wasn't publicly as bold or received a, as much attention as her sister just due to their personalities. Yeah. Um, and so that's personally really inspiring to me as someone who does doubt myself and feels you know, maybe I'm not maybe quieter or more of a behind the scenes person or things like that. After their deaths, according to this one book I was reading, Sarah Grimke's writings actually are seen as the more revolutionary and the more lasting than her sister's. And so to yeah. me, that's really encouraging just to be remind us not to doubt how we're made, our callings, what our contribution can be, and not to compare ourselves to other people. Just do what God has put before us right now. Fabulous. So they've been very inspiring to me since the trip. Awesome. That is so cool to hear. Thank you. How about you, and Andrea? You and I had this conversation for a hot second on the bus, I yeah. feel like. And I don't even remember what day it was because all the days of Ruby Blue just kind of smashed together. <laughs> but we talked about how difficult it is to not only find stories of women in history, mm -hmm. but to find stories of women of color. And then even more than that, we had a specific conversation about finding Asian American women yeah. in history. And I mean, we, you know, we talked a little bit about Mabel Lee, mm -hmm. but I think that the women, it, it must be so powerful, I think, to see yourself in history. And that's why we all, that's interesting to us. Like, it must be so powerful for you to have visited the Tenement Museum and say, this is, this is literally my history. Yeah. I think though that that the thing that I, I took away from these stories was that there's power in representation in history and then there's power in being absent in history. Yeah. And I think that it, it yeah. feels so women in general, but especially women of color are always at risk of being written out of history. Wow. And yes. that is, that's so significant and it's so significant to me. Mm -hmm. And so I think the stories of these women are inspiring to me because I think, why didn't I know more about these stories? Why don't I know more about them? There's, as I've kind of looked for more Asian American history, there's literally, you can Google this, there's literally an article, I think it's an, on NBC, that's called, like, four Asian American women that you didn't learn about in school. 
Wow. And I'm like, why didn't I learn about them in school? Why do I have to do this very specialized thing to learn about mm. women of color and their contributions in mm. history? Their contributions have been great. We just don't know about them. Mm. And I think That's that exactly right. Yes. And what and what is that? And I think mm. even just in in thinking about what the implications are for me and us today, it's Women's History Month. You know, why aren't we learning about we learn about some diversity of women and women's history. But, you know, my my kid's school doesn't celebrate specifically Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Why not? Like, why don't we learn about those women as well? Those women aren't mentioned in Women's History Month either. Wow. Yeah, oh, did, you, did you know that the first non-white Congresswoman was an Asian American woman. Yes, yes, yes. Why didn't I know that? Why don't we teach that in schools? That's a win for all women of color, not just for Asian Americans. And mm-hmm. so I think I've been more struck and inspired by the stories that that we didn't learn about because of the power of the stories we did learn about. What else is there? What other women have contributed and sacrificed that we don't even know about? A to the men, <laughs> A to the woman. <laughs> I mean, a lot of these women I think about a lot, but the one that really um, I have in the forefront of my mind is Lucy Burns, mm-hmm. who um, early 1900s, 1910s, was on the forefront of fighting for the women's vote. And what struck me is fighting for the vote was not merely just standing in front of the White House with picket signs and having tea with the president. Mm -hmm. These women suffered violence and uh, Mm -hmm. incarceration for months on end, being force-fed raw eggs. I mean, Mm -hmm. just horrible. Mm -hmm. And these women generally were socialites. They didn't have to do this. You know, they had good lives. But they were so dedicated to fighting for the vote for all women. Mm -hmm. Well, white women at the time, I guess at least, you know, pushing it forward a little bit. And um, well, so there it was, was it was for all women, but only enforced for white women. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the night of terror that took place in a prison just here outside of Washington, D.C. I mean, just the horrendous, you know, just bashing and the guards just attacking these women and mm. and just the resolution and the strength of these women to carry on and continue the fight, you know, and make it better for all of us. I mean, to me, that's just astounding. You know, I really appreciate what Melissa said about it cost a lot. Mm -hmm. I wrote that down in my notes when he said it, because I think that's what all these stories add up to, is that it costs a lot. And Mm -hmm. I think that encourages us in our work every day. Uh, You know, I think all these people at the time were castigated and now we celebrate them as heroes. And we always forget that, right? When things get tough or when we get criticized in our communities or people say, could you just be quiet or Mm -hmm. please don't ask that uncomfortable question or please don't ask people to to go be part of this thing that feels threatening to us. You know, and we're surprised and we're like, oh, what, you know, they felt that every day, every moment they did the work. And I think there's this lie we tell ourselves sometimes that like this, you know, important work is going to be celebrated or understood. And, you know, part of my work looking at the Me Too movement globally, uh, I had a male colleague who's like, well, you know, you're not talking about the backlash enough in your research. And I invited him to maybe think about the civil rights movement. There was a tremendous backlash to the civil rights movement. You know, Dr. King, you know, we just celebrated MLK Day again Mm -hmm. uh, recently and, you know, was the most hated man in America by a poll at the time when he was killed. You know, and now people are like, let's go do service projects in his name. You know, so it's like we we forget we yeah. kill our prophets <laughs> in the Bible. We see they kill the prophets, you know, so it's it's going to cost something and it's going to cost a lot. It's going to cost a lot. But the thing that heartens me in doing this work all over the world is that when I see the backlash, that's actually evidence that hard and needed conversations are happening. Mm-hmm. I take that as a positive indicator, like the idea that you're going to change things. Everyone's going to be like, high five. That sounds great. Thanks for changing the way that I'm going to have to move through my life and all the power systems and structures that I'm used to. Sounds awesome. You know, probably not going to happen. Um, I would love it to, but it's probably not. Right. It's going to it's going to cost everybody something. And so I take that as a a positive sign. And I also am, am grateful for the example of all these women that we've learned about on these pilgrimages, because when I meet women all over the world, they they cite these women. Yeah. They cite, you know, people like Dolores Huerta or talking about, you know, Harriet Tubman, you know, women of color and white women that, that you know, fought good fights. And, you know, even when I was in Pakistan in October, 
every Pakistani woman, advocate, lawyer, activist that I met with was like, I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings. Wow. I was like, you were what? Wow. And they said they were all watching online. And I was like, what made you want to do that? And <laughs> they said, because, you know, we know you didn't have the outcome you wanted in terms of having a comprehensive full investigation and hearing. Mm-hmm. They're like, we're just fighting to have it even said out loud. Like, we're just fighting for it to even be an issue. Mm -hmm. And the day that I arrived to Pakistan, actually, I was in Lahore, and a number of uh, women lawyers there in Lahore took me the day that I landed in Pakistan to a press club where they were calling out their Supreme Court justices over misogyny and and some similar issues. And so seeing the sisterhood, again, of this work, you know, the global sisterhood, sisterhood, and that it costs us these women a lot in the American context, but they are still inspiring us and they are still inspiring women all over the world is really humbling. Wow. So let me ask you guys this. One of the goals of the Ruby Wood Pilgrimage is to tell the inter- that intersectional story that we've been talking about, actually. And so I want to ask you, how does the intersectional story that you learned change the way you think about women, period? And how does it change the way you think of America? I would say going the pilgrimage has changed how I spend my money and my time. You know, I was already deeply invested in social change, human rights work, but all over the world. And because of what's happened in our country and because of my experiences in the pilgrimage, I've really turned back to a focus here in the United States and really wanting to fight for and stand in the gap as a spiritual commitment to what I think this country can and should be, what our founding documents meant to enshrine, but did not clearly, you know, uh, did not, were not meant to represent everybody. We're not meant to actually uphold the equality of all people, (laughs) women, communities of color, you know, but wanting, wanting to do that work. And then I think it has to translate into real action. So one of the women on the pilgrimage when I went was Ruth Anna Buffalo, uh, who is an incredible uh, indigenous Native American woman leader activist. And I remember we were actually at Seneca Falls the day that I met and started talking to her. And, you know, we just having a conversation and like, you know, just within an hour of talking, I was like, Ruthiana, you know, are you going to run for office? I was like, you need to run for office. She's like, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I was like, you need to do it. And then she reached (laughs) out to me when she came back to D.C. a couple months later. And I was actually working on the the March of Our Lives with the Parkland students. I literally just gotten to D.C. that morning with the Parkland students. I'd slept like two hours. We're on an overnight train (laughs) coming from this conversation that I was moderating (laughs) at Harvard with them up at the Kennedy School. And I was really tired. But she said, can you, do you have time? And I was like, I have time for you. Of course I do. And I met with her and she was making this decision about whether to run or not. And Mm -hmm. um, I said to her, I want to financially support your campaign. I was like, I don't have much, but what I have is yours. Single working mom, Mm -hmm. you know, nonprofit work. But, but, you know, what is it going to take to make you be able to feel like you can run? And so I made a commitment to her. And I feel like it's not, it's just not enough. It's not enough to say, I'm with you, girl. (laughs) Like, I'm for you. High five, snaps. I'm right there. You know, it's like we have to be willing to, donate to women we believe in so they can run. And it, it, it takes a surprisingly small amount of money to run local races. And I think we always look at the big races like Senate or Congress or governor. Yeah. But the way that women and women of color are going to get to be those candidates more and more is they've got to start out running for local school boards, you know, for mm-hmm. races like Ruth Anna's. And she won. And now she's the first Native American woman to be a Democrat in the North Dakota um, state legislature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in getting some great attention, she was sworn in in um, regalia from her tribe and a beautiful photo of her. Yes. I believe with, like, God shining on her because she is just, like, illuminated in this photo, like, Absolutely. with so much joy and pride. And it went viral, yes. you know. And I'm just like, that's my girl from Ruby Wood. That's our girl. That's my girl getting tweeted about <laughs> by, like, Teen Vogue, Rachel yes. Maddow. You yes. know, she called me. She's like, Megan, Rachel Maddow called me. I was like, awesome, go do it, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, it's we have to be willing to put our, our treasure, our time, yeah. you know, behind these things. And so, you know, I this year made, looked at my budget and made some, some decisions to, to be really stretched to give to candidates and give to women of color that I w- wanted to see, you know, hopefully win those races. And some of them really did. And I'm, I'm proud of that. So it's hopefully it's not just seeing the world different. It has to then be taking actions differently. Oh, that's good. That's good. How about others? 
I think that I've recognized, I think we can all recognize that this sisterhood that we're talking about, there are so many threats to that sisterhood that come externally, just mm-hmm. dominant narrative, toxic masculinity. I mean, it could, we could, it could go on and on, and we've seen that throughout history. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things around intersectionality really specifically on Ruby Woo that helped me understand this a bit more is the threat that comes from within the sisterhood yeah. of of the lack of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen it even with kind of the rifts and the and the issues that the Women's March has had both this mm-hmm. year as an organization and then the first the first one where it was just just overwhelmingly white women and i think just understanding that we can all of us can get in this spot where we are just fighting for ourselves and not and, and when you do that we have the tendency to try to silence other people so that our voices will be heard mm-hmm. and i think that ruby woo and looking at intersectionality and the stories of these different women especially especially the narratives of white women and African-American women um, in the history of suffrage and women's suffrage. When you look at that, you just think, guys, we're, we're fighting for the same, like for the same thing. It's not a you first, then me. It's not that. Mm-hmm. And that, that the, the, the narrative that has caused that kind of competition is mm-hmm. what we're fighting. It's not that we're fighting against one another. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're referencing there, just for, for the listeners, is that in the original suffrage movement that began in the 1830s, 1833 around, it was actually black-led. Most people do not know that in Philadelphia with the Fortin sisters and actually mother and sisters. And um, and they were with Lucretia Mott as well and others of about 14 other women who were a part of that movement. But it was really in many ways black-led. And then that movement, you know, very quickly um, it became a national thing and there was a big convention in New York City where it was also very multi-ethnic, but most of the black folks were not actually there. They were invited and some mm-hmm. could could bear the expense, but not many. And so they didn't go and or they weren't there in, in big numbers like they really should have been. And then in, by six, uh, 1838, I believe, was when they had the Philadelphia Convention where the whole thing was burned down by a white mob of men who said, this is horrible. And part of the thing that was horrible was that it was this multi-ethnic group of Mm -hmm. women that were leading into abolition, right? So, and leading into black freedom. And so, but then that whole history is usually not told at all. That, like what you were saying is that if you're a woman of color, your history is vulnerable to be erased. And that's exactly what happened in the suffrage movement, because when Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, put on the convention in 1848, a decade later, that became the mile marker for when the women's empowerment movement began. And it wasn't. And and when we were talking, I think I know exactly what Ruby Sales said during our time with her, because I didn't know why. What happened? What happened to the, to the women in Philadelphia? Why weren't they there at Seneca Falls? Why was Seneca Falls all white except for Frederick Douglass? <laughs> Why? And what Ruby said was, well, there was animosity there. Mm-hmm. There was a sidelining of the black, of that black freedom movement mm-hmm. and those women. And so they went off and they did their own thing, which is exactly what always happens. So thank you for saying that, Andrea. I think that you and bringing that up is, is critical right now. It's critical. And I would add to to that that the more I've learned about Mabel Lee and her her involvement with with women's suffrage. Yes. That's the example that I want to follow. She fought for the vote for women. She fought for women's vote. And then when when they got it, she still couldn't vote. It wasn't even for her because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. She couldn't vote because she couldn't be naturalized as a citizen. So she fought for this right for women to be able to vote, even though it wasn't for her. And that's it. That's it right there. That is it. Yeah. That is it. So do you guys wear Ruby Woo now? <laughs> or red lipstick? <laughs> I do. Yeah. I wear it. I wear it all the time. Actually, I loved uh, recently, regardless of how you fall politically, when um, AOC, so Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, uh, yeah. who's gotten a lot of attention, when she got sworn in, she posted this Instagram post about how she wore red lipstick on purpose because women of color are so often told, don't, you know, don't dare do that. Uh, and she mm-hmm. talked about how um, Sonia Sotomayor, when she was sworn in to be Supreme Court justice, did the same thing. And oh, wow. she did it in 
Sonia's honor. But I now find myself wearing it all the time. And I think we just get a message so much as women to hide. Like, mm-hmm. just hide, you know? Yeah, and, true. and to wear that is to say, hey, I'm here. And I am a woman and, and I'm visible. And, you know, I wore it actually this past week when I went to go march in the Indigenous People's March yes. with you also, Lisa Sharon That's Harper. Right. Ruthanna Buffalo from Ruby Wool Pilgrimage was in town. Yeah. I took my son out of school because uh, my grandfather is Choctaw uh, Nation. And I wanted him to learn more about uh, that part of our family history. And uh, so I got to wear my Ruby Woo all weekend. <laughs> incredible woman but now i feel it's like it's kind of like a righteous celebratory act yeah and and now when i actually meet with other women who are on the pilgrimage my year we often all just independently decide to put it on it's so true before we meet each other uh so i saw vicky reddy from the justice conference who was also on the trip and all of us had just spontaneously shown up to dinner wearing our ruby woo (laughs) kind of in tribute to each other. <laughs> and Ruby Woo is not sponsoring this broadcast. <laughs> but they, they should, should be. Come on. <laughs> but they should be. So here's one more one more thought for you guys. I mean, we have an incredible, we've talked about, you know, the fact that we have a lot of women running for president right now. And I want to ask you, what do you think a woman's leadership offers the nation for such a time as this? What do you think? I think that there is... I'm talking more specifically within the evangelical context, too. I think that there is this misconception of egalitarians, of egalitarian thinking, of women can lead just like men can lead. I think there's there's this misconception that what we mean by that when we say that is that women can do whatever men can do and they can do it like a man. Uh, And that I I think that when we talk about egalitarianism versus complementarianism, you're missing that hierarchical part. I definitely think that women do complement men in several ways, just the way that we process things, the way that we internalize, the way that we lead is different. And that is a value and it shouldn't be hierarchical. It shouldn't be a hierarchy that's placed on how we do it either way. So I think there's this misconception. And I think that when you take away that hierarchy and you take away that misconception to say that women do bring something to the table that men don't bring to the table. It's not more valuable than what men bring to the table. It's just different. Mm. And because our leadership of our country and our churches mostly have been, it's been so male dominated. We do need women up in here, (laughs) up in the country (laughs) and in the church. We need some women up in here to bring balance to this very imbalanced way of leading and we we do that and so i think to be the way that we lead if we are allowed to lead as women we bring something really valuable to the table a to the woman (laughs) that's great anybody else well i mean just following up on that i do think that that's been an issue that we've had to deal with whereas women in power basically have to lead like men to succeed yeah you know margaret thatcher even hillary to some extent Mm -hmm. they're not allowed to you know be women. Be women, exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's what's missing. And hopefully now that's beginning to change. And yeah. that's going to change the world. Yeah, honestly, I think, and really in a really weird way, I think it's one of the pieces of power of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. AOC. It's one of the pieces of power of AOC, right? So I think there's a way that that red lipstick, she is saying, I am woman, hear me roar. Not I am woman in a man's suit, hear me roar. Right? Yeah, that's really great. Anybody else? I think um, just women are resilient um, and Mm. are generally good at collaborating and generally good at peacemaking. And so I think those are all qualities that we can use today in our society. There's actually a measurable (laughs) research that peace agreements have up to a 30 percent more likely chance of succeeding and having a durable peace if women Mm -hmm. are part of peace negotiations. And I will say that everything that got kicked off with the Women's March in 2017 has had these global reverberations where there are more gender balanced cabinets than we're seeing ever before. We had three new women heads of state. A couple weeks ago, Jim Kim from the World Bank announced he was stepping down and people are saying it's after 74 years, it's it's time for a woman to be president yes. at the World Bank. So that, you know, that's my foreign policy world and the focus where I'm at. But, you know, I've heard conversations that are deeply concerning to me among even people that I would consider, you know, fellow upholders of the fight in the progressive or democratic um, movements that, you know, maybe this isn't the election for a woman to run. You know, if we really want to have a counter option to Trump, maybe this isn't the time 
time to take on gender mm-hmm. as well. Again, look what happened to Hillary's mm-hmm. candidacy and like setting setting aside political beliefs or parties or persuasions. That just has to stop. Yes, that has to stop. And like, and I'm <sighs> I'm tired of having hallway conversations with important people. You know, that are like, this may not be the moment. I hate to say it, but it may not. And I'm like, when is the moment? You know, it turns out it's never the moment until we finally win. And then everyone's like, oh, that was the moment. But those same people were told, this is not the moment. This is not the moment. Not a good time. You know, it's never a good time to change systemic structures that say that some people are worthy and some are not. It will never be the convenient time, the, convenient the welcome time. time, the right time, you know, yeah. so we have to take this narrative back. And and hey, I would love to see a woman primary Trump and see a woman run on the other side of the aisle. I would love to see two women candidates running against each for other for real. president with totally different beliefs and totally different views on the world. I think that's a healthy thing. That's a that's what our system should be at its best. You know, and so like, why can't we all embrace that in our different communities? I would love to see the conservative community. Have an incredibly qualified, wonderful woman run. That would be great. That would be a great outcome. So when are you going to run? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm wondering. When are you going to run? Oh, Lisa. Megan Stone. (laughs) I think I said it first. (laughs) Mark these words, people. Mark these words. So thank you, guys. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, women, (laughs) for coming and for sharing your hearts and your stories with us. These are the conversations that we have on the road to justice. This is Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. (laughs) That's a promise. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. So join the conversation on Freedom Road.